I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. Have you ever heard about the mathematical-driven craftsman? I had never heard the term before, but after speaking to the founder of his eponymous Brooklyn-based textile studio, I understand. And I think after hearing his story, you'll understand as well. Woven deep into the fabric of William Storm's DNA lies an almost primal desire to create from instinct. To weave a story into the work he crafts and looming large within the narrative is a strong desire to make something never before seen and at a time when there's a premium placed on unique, original, handmade work, William Storms is someone you should know. Side note, I do love that handmade artistry has found its way back into design. I believe craftsmanship matters again. For a while, it was lost due to the pro proliferation, really, of mass-produced, cheaper product from destinations near and far. Not necessarily cheaper product to buy, but cheaper materials, um, cheaper worksman worksman's workmanship, not the craftsmanship. Craftsmanship matters because... I don't, I don't care for cookie cutter, and I think most designers and certainly clients feel the same way. It's a challenge finding creative artisans, and that is one of the reasons why I actively seek them out. And you are going to hear from an amazing creative, William Storms, and you're going to hear William's story right after this. I consider myself so incredibly fortunate to be working with some of the amazing partners and sponsors on Convo by Design. Thermosol, the presenting sponsor of Convo by Design. I've been, I've been working with this, with this amazing group of people for over four years. And it's really amazing. I was recently out at the Brown Rock, Texas facilities for the 65th annual celebration and had a chance to sit down with Mitch Altman, third generation president and CEO of the company. I also had a chance to sit down with Murray Altman, who's the second generation CEO and president of the company. And I am telling you, what makes Thermosol so special is the people and the technology and the manner in which they approach the business. If you're a designer and you, you aren't adding steam uh, and sauna to a luxury bathroom, can you really call it luxury? They've been the industry leader in steam bath equipment and technology since 1958. They have an in-house engineering team that constantly and consistently works to better the product. They don't, as you will hear, um, I had a chance to interview Mitch again uh, for the show. The last time he was on was episode 271. So it was definitely time for him and I to, to catch up again. And he told the story of how the company was, was founded and started. Every steam generator is hand inspected before it leaves the factory. I, I don't know of another company that does that. They put such pride into the product and the workmanship and the craftsmanship of the product that when you go into your steam shower, it is going to deliver precise, reliable results every single time. And that's what you can count on with Thermosol. And there's a lifetime warranty to back it up. So there's no risk, only reward. It's amazing. Their technological marvels like intelligent showering systems and sound therapy, aromatherapy, the, the technical interfaces, and more, all through Thermosol. So check them out, thermosol.com or at Thermosol uh, on the socials. Check the show notes for links to the website. Or if you have a question about the product, e email me and I will tell you what I think. Convo by design at outlook.com. I, I really can't. It's so funny. Some of the good stuff we have before I, before I hit record. Tell me about your, what your stress hill. Is that what you said? Oh yeah. I, um, I mean, <laughs> in January of this year, I left my career job working full time, um, moved apartments in Brooklyn, opened my 5,000 square foot studio in North Carolina and, uh, bought a new car so that I could drive from Brooklyn to North Carolina. Um, I guess I accidentally opened a mill, but anyway, uh, I got shingles. So that the joke is on me. Uh, so that really, I'm 32. It knocked me on my ass, uh, pardon, but 
I <laughs> highly suggest the vaccine. I'm like very pro. Um, okay, so the, the, well, there's so much here to unpack. Yeah, sorry, you, okay. you, you <laughs> threw so much. Okay, okay. A couple of questions. First of all, I'm I'm sorry about the shingles. I I hope you feel better. Um, yeah, absolutely, that's just awful. We all take our turn, right? Yeah. Um, hopefully not, but I know what you mean. Um, okay. Are you feeling better? I mean, are you, are you good oh, now? Yeah. For sure. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So tell me, and it's funny because on your website, when you're talking, you're, you're telling your story, but the biggest complaint I have is you explained like that you're, you're on your own, you're taking this big leap, but you didn't put a date to it. So I don't know when the whole thing started. I'm, I'm trying to follow the timeline. So do me a favor, back up, back up a second. Um, that is amazing that you make this jump. You're making the leap. So what were you doing? What paid the bills? What, what let, I see your passion and I want to get into your art and I, and I love your work. I really, really do. And I want to get to that. And I, but I, I have so many questions. The, this love of weaving the, your passion for looms, you know, but what, what made it possible for you to take that jump? How did you know? What were you doing before and why now? Um, I appreciate uh, what you were saying uh, first off, but um, I w was a senior designer for Jackard Mills. So I was working for previously, um, and I still work a uh, freelance consult with Krypton Mills. Um, so Krypton Performance Fabrics. Before then I was designing with Sombrella. Before Sombrella, I was a jacket designer with Sunbury in New York on Broom Street. So I like was on the mill side, especially at Sunbury, um, working with like top editors, like um, like Dongia, um, Brunswick and Fees, Galamadre, like Lee Jofa, Kravit, Tebow. Like these were people like coming in and out of our office for like 10 years. So I did, I did Jackard Fabrics, obsessed with it. Um, but yeah, it was, I have a big mouth and uh, I think I, I, I love weaving, like you said. So I think ambition can come across that or excitement. Um, I know I'm very like an eager person. So I'm sure uh, to all my former coworkers, it, it was a lot to do with, but I learned so much. Like I, I genuinely love um, this weird manufacturing thing that we have here. Yeah, that's not enough. I'm going to need a little bit more information from you. Um, is it when you say you have a big mouth, because I can totally relate to that. Is it the, the kind of thing where you talk up a big game and eventually you were like, OK, well, if I'm if I'm going to if I'm going to tell the story and I'm going to create the narrative, it's time for me to put up or shut up. I've got to go do this. Or was it like I can so I can do this better. And so I'm out. It wasn't it definitely was never like a, I'm I can do this better. So go away. But um, I, I took the time and I learned, like I, I was fortunate enough to study weaving and uh, weaving school in Paris. Um, I had to learn the language and these old techniques. I came back, I worked with uh, an interior designer, no, uh, with a textile studio where we, I was weaving like wall upholstery for Peter Marino. And I was like 21. And I was like, this is the wall upholstery for the Chanel store in like Tokyo or something. And it was just so cool to get that first taste of the luxury industry. So when I left that studio and went to work full-time at the Jackard Mills, I we jumped from selling like $300 a yard fabric to custom upholstery to interior designers to like trying to bend a furniture manufacturer's arm to buy a $12.95 fabric that you can urinate on. It's a performance fabric that you can pee on and it's $12.95 and you're telling us it's too much? like. I just got really fed up with trying to work in the industry. And then the other part of that was with my big mouth, like corporations have hierarchies. People put in a ton of time and to get to that director level. And I am an eager kid from New Jersey in the corner being like, well, why can't we do this? Like I can, I can uh, see how the optics would go there, but anyway, I digress. It's, it's funny. That's hilarious. Um, I, I think it's it's an interesting idea, you know, talking through the this idea of of taking something that is, you know, performance fabric, which is which is very, very utilitarian. Right. Yeah. And it's I don't want to say that it's not it's not there's no art to it because it, there can be there, there can be. But that's not its primary purpose. What you do now is for the love 
of the work and for the art of it. And I asked this question of, I've been talking to a lot more makers lately because that's what that's what kind of turns me on. That's what I've just been really, really into. I started this series called American Made by Hand and um, I'm fascinated by the level of work that's being done around the, the country. And one of the, one of the things that I, I'm genuinely interested in to know as well is when did you know that, when did you feel, and maybe comfort isn't the right word, but when did you know that this, this, you were ready to make this, when did the imposter syndrome kind of go away, even if it's still there? I, I feel like for, for makers and creatives, there's always a piece of that there. Like, what am I doing? I'm not completely confident in my work. I think, I think that's a natural feeling. I think we all should have some seeds of second of, of doubt because that's what makes us go further. Right. But when did you know, like, you know what, I'm, I'm really good at this and not in a cocky way, but I'm really good at this and I can make this work. Um, I think it partially was um, projects grew larger and I, I did not have the time. I was telling myself as five um, in New York, like I would go home and weave on the loom as I was showing in New York and still growing and um, I was, was working full time, pardon. Uh, but it just kept growing. So ultimately where I had so many projects and so many collaborations um, as well as my full-time senior design role for doing jackhard fabrics. And I had told myself I would not fail either by half doing both. And so I would not disrespect the company I worked with, Krypton Mills, um, as a senior designer and, and just stop, just have them get to a point where be like, where is this? Um, and then also I couldn't let my passion down. So I, if, I, if you got to pick, I'm going, uh, yeah, we all know where, where everyone would naturally go. So it really just became a it's time thing. And then as far as imposter syndrome, still happening. But I think I, in the reverse sense, like, what does it take to not feel like an imposter anymore? I don't know if anyone ever really gets there because you like being a creative, you're always striving to get to get better. So I think you never I'm never quite satiated with what I've done, but I know it's so far the last project I've done has always been my favorite because I've been learning from each one. But um, I literally have been like holding a magazine I'm in and like looking at my collab with West Elm on my website. And I'm like, are you satiated yet? Like you little freak when it, where is how could you possibly be having self-doubt right now? But it still exists. It's like human nature, you know? What, what eases that? Is it the collaborations you do with others or is it the work that you do on your own? And, and by the way, it's so funny. Like I'm looking at your website and you have video of a loom in, a, in operation. Do you know that I, can, I could sit there and just watch that forever I just love the way it looks what is it what is it about that I just love the way it looks I don't know I whenever I was walking in the back of the jackhard mills I called it um my like thread symphony or like loom orchestra because yeah if you like the way it looks you should feel it because there's a certain hum when you're in a, on a manufacturing floor or the loom you're looking at for mine I just bought accidentally it feels like two Dornier production looms made in Germany from 1972 they run on old punch cards. I got a punch card machine. Um, a friend of mine was just in a textile museum in Portugal and sends me a photo of a punch card machine. <laughs> and she's like, look, uh, they still use these. And I'm like, well, I have one. <laughs> so um, I, so that loom, it's like my, the farthest I'll go into mass production, uh, but you're, you're standing there weaving on it. Um, but yeah, the rhythm of the whole thing is very soothing. So I think, Weaving it in general is just very repetitive and um, relaxing. So uh, that's a whole other subject though. <laughs> Are you musical? Um, I, yes, yeah. I, I learned to play a variety of instruments when I was younger. I, for some reason I could not learn to read the music, which is funny now because I read red and white squares on a weave draft, like, and I could tell what's on the back of the cloth, what's on the face, but um, music, I never could, learn it i'm sure i could now uh but my ear was very good for the instruments i guess i don't know because and this may sound really weird i, I talk about this all the time in a, in a previous in a previous life um i was the director of uh, playboy radio and um 
I would do the interviews every year when the musicians would come to town for the Playboy Jazz Festival in LA. And so I, I built some relationships and, and had some amazing conversations with a lot of jazz musicians. And I, I, I sort of gleaned over time, once I started doing this, that there are a lot of, there's a lot of connectivity between interior design, architecture, the, the arts, specifically as it relates to interior design and architecture and music. And what we're talking about, when I hear you talk about this and I watch this work, this seems very musical to me. It seems like part of the creative process is, a, is about the flow and the rhythm and the beat. And this in particular, because of how it works, I can, I can feel what you're talking about. Like I get it, I can understand it. And I, I can only compare it to you know being at the Hollywood Bowl on a, on a sunny, warm June day, you know, watching Wayne Shorter or, you know, Herbie Hancock. And I feel that way as, do you think about your work musically? Because when you look at it, it's a final composition. For sure. And it's, it's, hey, I appreciate you saying that very much. B, I was, uh, one of my favorite episodes is the interview with Ian Love. And I know that you guys had touched on a, your dedication of connecting artisans with trade and trade with new artisans because it's very difficult. Um, so I respect that a lot. I think part of that imposter syndrome thing is just telling people over and over who you are because designers are looking and the artisans need them. Uh, so I appreciate your mission in that. And secondly, the um, yeah the the music and design comparison because you and Ian both had come from that background and outside of elementary middle school, I, I don't. Um, the, it's incredible. Your body's like in the whole thing. And the loom you're looking at is an automated loom. So it runs the yarns itself. But a hand loom, uh, you're pressing on pedals on the bottom, you're beating the beater. So a lot of times, I'm sure there's a certain RPMs, depending on what cloth you're doing, uh, that would like help you facilitate weaving. Because if you're going hard and doing upholstery fabric, you're freaking banging that thing. And it, I mean, you are making it really tight or a rug. Whereas, so you might need higher RPMs, like something to get you faster and keep going. But if you're doing a linen drapery uh, and it's like for a palette, like who knows where uh, or what project someone's working on, um, you it's a much softer touch. Literally, if you bang too hard, you will create a dense line in the fabric and it's, it's not sheer anymore. So um, I, I wonder if there's a, something to be said between RPMs and all of that. You know what's funny? So I'm wondering too, and and I'm I'm thinking like as we're talking, I'm thinking when you say RPMs, you're, you're like at revolutions per minute because you're on a loom and that's how it works. And I'm and I'm thinking musically and BPM. BPM as in, yeah. Well, no, no, no. I I think you're onto something because a loom is working kind of in an RPM, like a like a motor, like an engine, yep. right? But the music is working in BPMs, beats per minute. And I'm curious, do you listen to music when you're when you're working? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's funny because I just sent a project to uh, for a restaurant in Boulder, Colorado. Um, I can't wait to go and see it, but I, I shipped a piece out and I my timeline has been all over the place between New York and North Carolina. So the front half of the piece, I noticed my beat was softer and the back half, it's way tighter. And it, the song was different. So I was listening to my like morning playlist, which is very soft in the beginning. And then a week later, when I went back to finish it, I was listening to like a workout playlist and you can a hundred percent tell, uh, it ended up complimenting the work. Um, but it was, I'm the only, that's one of the things that you see as a creative. You're like, Oh boy, that was that extra cup of coffee. You really beat that in there. <laughs> well, so wait a minute. So I'm fascinated by this because I, I believe that there's there's a connection between the two. When when that happens and you see it, and of course you're probably the only one that's really going to notice it. Do you consider that a mistake, a happy accident, or is that part of the work? I think I, I think it will become part of a future work. Like every mistake I've made up until this point where I run out of rope and have to make a new knot and pretend it was intentional. I'm starting to realize that those are beauty marks. Like in production and manufacturing, everything is perfect. And we talked about performance fabric and design earlier. Parameters often allow you to design better. So because of the type parameters, as everyone says, that's not my concept, but um, as performance fabric has tighter parameters, that, that image better be damn good because you can only use certain weaves. Whereas other fabrics that don't have the same requirement, 
can be all about the yarn because it's gonna, it doesn't have to abrade for 25,000 double rubs. Um, but with artwork, it's that step away from the manufacturing brain. Like there are no rules at my handloom. So I can do whatever I want. I can do a float of however long I want. Um, and I think that, yeah, just the making those sort of beauty marks I've learned along the way is like the happy accident. So from this piece that had this area that was too tight, like maybe I can do a session of huge artwork in the future that is I'm weaving specifically to match moods. So I'll weave in a specific mood for an hour. The next time I weave on it, I'll weave in another mood for an hour, maybe with a different color and you can start to visually represent. So I don't know, but uh, TBD. <laughs> what's, uh, what's on your morning playlist? Um, it's actually a friend of mine's Getty's uh, on Spotify. It's called When It's Morning. Um, and it is, hold on, I gotta pull it up. It's like, it's a really great mix. Um, it's everything from like 23 and me. Uh, sorry, man. I love that we're doing this in real time. You're no, pulling up the place. Well, more, I guess, you know, more to the point, instead of what's on the playlist, because it's funny, I, the reason I'm asking is because I would love, just as an exercise, to look at specific work you do and try to figure out what you were listening to at the time. I just think that would be, that would be so much fun for me. What do you, what do you listen to? Uh, musically speaking, what's your, what's your genre or, or range of genres? It is all over the place. Um, I always say that like, I'm very specific with design and art. So when it comes to music, like I sort of, I don't have a set genres or styles that I listen to. Like I grew up in a house that played like the Gypsy Kings and um, like, oh God, the Dave Matthews Band, unfortunately, but that was the nineties in New Jersey, wasn't it? Oh, don't say that. Don't say unfortunately. <laughs> I remember seeing them at the Coca-Cola Starplex in Dallas, Texas. One of the hey, best shows of no. Um, mid mid nineties, mid nineties. I also yeah. I, I appreciated the millennial combo with um the Ian uh, your Ian interview as well. But uh, um, yeah, in the morning I'll listen to soft soft music, um, bossa nova. Uh, this lo-fi work music lately has really been doing it because of that consistent tempo where you're uh, very unsure if the song has changed. It's sort of jazzy, sort of not. Um, but then yeah, it's just it it ranges. I'm a high tempo person. So I said RPM because of rotations per minute as spin class. Yeah. <laughs> What's the, so when, because you've done both and the work you do, I mean, I, I don't like to, I don't like to classify people, I, but, but I feel like labels are kind of important because they help further a conversation. Are you, are you an artist? Are you a weaver? Are you a craftsman? Are you a product designer? Are you, what are you? Yes. Um, this is, I mean, I think about this question a lot. A lot of uh, other contemporary weavers and artists, and I talk about this a lot because the word that you use to describe it changes exactly how, how you're perceived. So on my Instagram right now, it says in my bio, it says artist. Everything I approach is the way that I want to do it. Most people know my work because of my artwork. On the back half of that, I also have an active design brain, which I think is working as an artwork within manufacturing parameters. I love math and I love structure and I love rules. <laughs> um, so like Grasshopper and Rhino, like that is a dream to me to combine 3D modeling and par parametric coding with weaving, uh, but that's another day. So I guess, I'm going with artists right now, but it is um, in an ever-changing landscape of identity and pronouns. I don't think I have to pick, damn it. <laughs> you know what's, okay, so you, what's, what's interesting about that is no, you absolutely don't have to pick. And sometimes it's better to be fluid where you can weave, no pun intended, from, from one into the next and back because I think that that is really the only way to, to allow that total and complete free form of creativity, right? At the same time though, and the reason I kind of go to that, I'm, I'm talking to a, a bunch of designers who are working on various design houses, design show, you know, uh, show house projects around the country. And it's really interesting for me because talking to designers, you know, when they do a show house 
or a design house or an inspiration house, generally speaking, you're not working with a client or in most cases, you're not working with a client. It's kind of an idea and you have a chance to be far more creative and artsy. Then when you're working with actual clients, they have very specific ideas and you, you have to kind of, okay, well, I've got to do what they want to do. And sometimes that, that stifles the creative side, but it increases the, the craftsman side. Right. And that's why it's so interesting to me. I have spoken to some creatives who are like, I'm an artist. I'm going to do what I want to do. And if they don't like it, okay. that's yeah. fine. They're yeah. not my client. Others are, I am a, I had a conversation like this the other day. I am a craftsman. I am not an artist. I am someone who is going to replicate, duplicate, recreate an experience that they had before in a new format. I get that too. But I think it's important to know the difference and to also know if one is capable of, of entering and exiting both spaces. Yes. And I, in this context that, or lightning, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. And my friend, again, we, ha we have had this conversation where um, an incredible talented weaver artist, a friend of mine, she's very, this is my work. I am doing series of my vision and um, there's commission projects and things, but it's really, she does not favor replicating the same one-off type of work. I sort of bifurcate it. My artwork for me is what I make at home on my off hours. It's what makes me feel good. It's self-soothes or is a coping mechanism. I don't know, but weaving make uh, and what I do in my personal time, that's what gets, becomes my artwork those often become conversation starters for what is my trade. And that's, and it's the most collaborative aspect of my practice. It's working with interior designers and 70% of the things I've made ended up being so much better because of the collaborative space between an interior designer's vision and mine. So in the fine art world, the galleries in Chelsea and in Chicago, that's a dirty thing to do that to work and change your vision to work with the trade it's often outsider artwork I started in fine art and moved into design like this so this conversation is uh, very polarizing I'm sure you've experienced it before the fine art world poo poos textile craft a the word craft b and c working with interior designers but you know what they have the budget so I'll be <laughs> I have um the largest project of my career so far it's uh at the NDA allows me only to say that it is a new land, new headquarters in a landmark new York building for a tech large tech company. Um, so I'll be able to tell more in six months, but they're funding the largest project of my entire career. It has changed the way I view myself and my work. And I'll be damned if they're, I mean, it, it, the Medici's are gone. So these large tech corporations, and I heard it in, in the Ian interview, not to mention it again, are now funding artists um, but it's technically an interior design project, but it's, this is, I mean, this is my life work to date. So it's very, very, uh, it's a rabbit hole. Pardon. <laughs> no. It, and here's, what's interesting about that. I, I feel like we're in, in a very, very interesting, fun, weird and fluid environment right now. Yeah. And I think what, what's happening is there's a, We've got, have you, have you noticed we're in a world of wars right now? Like there's all kinds of wars going on worlds, wars of words and wars of culture and wars of, there is this, the, to what you speak, there is this conflict in the arts community. And I've seen it. I've seen it a lot. We've got this rise of the maker and this is not new. This is, you know, emanating from what I, what I personally connect this to based on the interviews I've had, the conversations I've had where I see this. I, I pin it back to 0809 um, and the, the recession, depression, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. because what happened was it put a lot of people out of work. It put a lot of people in, in a new situation of which they found themselves very uncomfortable. Right. And it and it forced people to go do something different because a lot of them lost their jobs. A lot of them lost their homes. A lot of them lost their livelihood and had to go figure out something else to do. And that kind of spurred on the gig economy. Right. And then what people learned with the gig economy is I can I can go work at a, a job for another company 
but I can also do other things. And I think prior to that, people didn't feel like you could be a multitasking employee slash maker slash whatever, right? You, mm-hmm. you could be a, what is it? A multi-hyphenate, right? Yeah. And so it enabled people to go do something else and follow their passions and their dreams of which you are a direct descendant. You're a byproduct. I don't mean you're a byproduct, but that's what kind of gave you an opportunity to think that way. Yeah. It's been such a level set at that time for me that I don't know if I have the ability to recognize that I, the prior, like I have, and part of the saying before that I was annoying when I worked at corporations, things, I wasn't annoying, but my passion bled everywhere. Like I was having a gallery show on the weekend. I had the creative director of the mill and I were in the same blanket weaving competition gallery thing. Like I could not get enough of it. So that gig economy, like I, I was always threading looms at a synagogue in New Jersey when I lived in Brooklyn with the, on Saturdays so that they could weave their tolly or something. And I can get 500 bucks because weaving and art is a rich kid sport. These things are very expensive. I now sit in my palace of like six looms. There's an echo in here. Um, and I have the two production looms from 72 and like I have a, I can make my yarn now about a, a yarn flying machine, but um, looms, you can't graduate college and just buy one. They're, they're expensive. You can't afford to put it somewhere in New York. I went into like crazy debt <laughs> uh, with weaving and after 10 years, it's finally like I have 5,000 square feet and I'm going to propose next weekend and bringing my first collection of fabric by the yard, which I made on two looms that are 10 feet from my giant hand loom. So there's bleeding between fine art, there's bleeding between fabric. Um, and I've gone so wide now on my response that I don't remember your question. Well, it's so funny because we, what I've gleaned from this is that weaving is to art what auto racing is to sport. So, or dressage or horse, you know, horse racing or something, you know, yeah. you, you have to have, you have to have, you have to make a, a significant commi- commitment, both financial and otherwise. Oh, the, yeah. the, idea, the idea was, that um, there's this conflict between makers and artists. Yes. And, and, that, and that makers can't be producing art according to the artists who do it. And I, I think we, we can pretty much establish that every artist at one point in time is a maker. Michelangelo, I believe he had a painting job. I would have to agree. And it was funded by, uh, like, come on now. And that those sorts of funding situations aren't happening anymore, which is yeah. why I've been marketing it to the tech campus space and all of that. But um, the I think the artist versus maker question also depends on who you're asking. Because if you are taking, if you are a contemporary artist taking the traditional gallery route and you've been putting your dues in and got your degrees so that you can show and blah, blah, blah then when someone is a craftsman and a wood maker, a furniture maker or a textile, like if someone is a craftsman providing a service and a handmade good to the trade in the comfort of your studio that you've built, it's coming from a little bit of a different space, but those people are being celebrated so well now, like um, Dugal Paulson and Wendy Chen, like they're amazing artists and craftspeople working with the trade um that i don't i don't know it's a it's it's a rabbit hole i I you are listening to my conversation with william storms we'll be right back we are living at a time of incredible growth both technologically and creatively with respect to interior design exterior design and architecture there is no question there are companies thinking differently about the business of design and how to make products super serve those for whom they're being made One of those companies, and one of my favorites, is Moya Living, designer and fabricators of some of the most stunningly beautiful, incredibly durable, and highly functional kitchen, bath, and outdoor kitchen cabinetry on the market today. Powder-coated steel with stunning lines, vibrant colors to fit any design style or aesthetic. A history of designing cabinetry for the scientific community, so you know it's been tested in some of the truly the most harsh conditions available. Moya O'Neill is the CEO and founder of Moya Living. She's the inspiration behind the design. Designers, their specification process is so simple. It will make your job so much easier. Check them out online through the socials at Moya Living, their website, moyaliving.com, and in the real world, their live kitchen showroom 
in Fountain Valley, California. What was what was the first piece that that you crafted that was either maker or art that you sold that kind of let you know that because the only way I can compare this is, you know, having having spoken with a lot of makers, creatives, artists, there's a feeling when you produce a product for someone else and you do it at a very high level, but then there's a feeling when you produce a product for yourself, be it a one-off or a multi-piece, that you sell that one piece that came from here and it came from here and you it, it was all from you that, that you sold that. It leaves your studio and you're like, what just happened? I think I just became an artist. I think I just became a professional at my hobby. When did that change? Um, I'm trying to think. It, um, you mentioned earlier that the timeline is hard to place. Uh, yeah. And it is because I've been doing this for so long and just now I'm finally able to like um, support it and do it full time. Uh, and by the way, while you're thinking, because I want to follow that up with where, where I'm kind of going with it. It's not like, when, what was the day? When was the hour? What was the moment? But it, what happens after that is then you realize somebody bought my work. Somebody thinks there's, a, there's now a, a dollar amount. There's now an actual tangible value. And then you, you say, okay, how do I do this again? So now I, because you're, I can tell from our conversation, you are a collaborator. True, through and through, like collaboration is, is what you do. Like you like this. You're, you're not just the sole proprietor of one man show. You want to collaborate. You want to work. So how do you find those interior designers? How do, how do the clients find you? And how do you replicate that? Because to me, that seems like the X factor. Like if, if everyone who creates something wonderful could figure that out. This is my, this is actually my favorite part. And it took me, is taking me or took me a long time to figure out. Um, but I, after years and years of gallery shows, I had one five years ago, almost six years ago, um, with Molly Haynes in Brooklyn. And I didn't, uh, people came, I sold a piece, and I, I, for the first time, I started seeing what that market was and who's buying artwork. As an artist, you're not, if you are targeting individual sales, oftentimes people are not making a decision that's over $2,000 on an aesthetic choice without someone holding their hand being like, you can do it. It's okay. This has value. So I realized the audience is not the consumer. It is the interior designer. And, and they have budgets. They have a lot of projects and they need um, like, how do they take in information? And that's by pitch decks and by making it easy for them to understand what your formula is and, uh, how they can work with you. Because by the time that they've started picking, selecting artwork or, but depending on who the client is, they could have the rug, the wall color, the wallpaper, the upholstery, everything. So now it's the final details of the artwork and you need to pull it all together. Like here's all my yarns, I can make yarn. But um, all of that to go back to say that, uh, jumping from seeing the individual person as my client to the interior designer, and made me realize that I had a skill that people needed. And that was providing custom artwork and things like that. So um, just getting as much content as I can to them and uh, as clear directions, just trying to make it as easy as possible. My deck is one of my favorite things. <laughs> I, would, I would love to see it, um, but, but take that now and the, the, by the yard work. So now that is a transition. Look, to me, I could be totally wrong. You tell me, but I see that as a wholesale transition from the artistry to the craftsman. And by doing that simultaneously, um, is, that a different, is that a different business model for you? Is that the same, but slightly modified? What is that? The, the good thing is, um, and I could go on such a rant here, but I won't. Normally you have in the consumer chain, you have the mill who sells it to an editor or a distributor who sells it to the interior designer. Um, so if you're an artist and you wanna start doing fabric by the yard, you gotta partner with the mill. They have to weave a, enough of it for you to approve and like it and trials. And then you gotta order one piece minimums, unless it's Turkey and it's, I think it might still be one piece or China's 300 yards. I have manufacturing equipment right here. I like, <laughs> I wake up, I 
throw colors together. I make the yarn on my bonding machine. And then I'm like standing there with my coffee still and I put it on the loom and I weave it. Like I can, I'm very flexible. And um, like the same yarn that I'm weaving on my hand loom, I put there uh, on the production loom just to see. So it's coming from the very no rules sort of place. I want it to be like a chef's menu of like, hey, what's on <laughs> William's loom like for the next six months? And it might be, I bought some old linen from Belgium that they don't make anymore. So now I'm plying it into a boucle and I'm going to weave it for six months. And then after that, it's gone. Um, trying to make so, it fresh. Okay. But that's a, okay. So that's a really interesting idea. And I get the whole chef's table thing that the thing about a, a chef's menu rather, but the thing about a chef's menu is that oftentimes the chef's menu is what it is because they have perishable ingredients that they want that they yeah. want to get out the door we have, in we have so i want to ask you about that but i also want to ask you too because i find that this is a really important side that many don't actually think about and that is the inventory management so you know you have a isn't it interesting too the the brain works in in funny ways and i find myself thinking differently i'm in the midst of this um an ai and machine learning course through through a, a, a prestigious university and um i would love to know more about that i'm in the i'll i'll tell you offline it's it's really really interesting but it's it's right now dealing with statistics and processing of data and that material and or those ideas and and as I'm thinking about this, you know, you have, you have the yarn behind you and because design isn't specified for next week, especially with how the supply chain has been for the last couple of years, decision-making in the design industry and process has gotten a lot further out. People have become used to that. How do you know if what you're producing is going to sell? Because there's a difference between, and I don't want to call it mass produced because you're not doing mass produced, you're doing small batch as opposed to one-off, but you still, if you're producing, you still have to produce enough to quick ship or are you doing everything? It's like, look, you're, it's going to just take longer to get it from me and you have to realize that going in. This is um, another huge combo. Like we were talking about the 0809 um, recession Prior to that, it was uh, when the textile industry moved basically out of the U.S. and like mills closed from like 90 until still, they're still closing. Um, and it's because uh, everyone was buying fabric overseas, which made it really hard to keep yarn manufacturers in the United States open when their customers, the mills were closing. So in the U.S. right now, we have the, a very low no number of yarn manufacturers left. Um, depending on what industry you're going after. So the, the perishable vegetables from the chef's menu of that day, the equivalent for us is dead stock yarn. And I can't tell you how often it happens, but you find a beautiful cone of yarn and it could be like, you blow off the label and it could be from like 1950, it could be from 1990. But the point is it can't be reproduced anymore. The equipment broke down. So it, we have like two cones or 10 pounds of this. And I'm, I'll weave it for you. So like I'll, that, those sorts of specialty things where, you know, a, a, an editor or a distributor can't do that because they'd have to inventory it and sample it and all that stuff. Like I, I can do whatever. So that flexibility is there. On the other hand, everything that's not chef's menu is made from um, locally sourced recycled components. So I have recycled wool, recycled linen, recycled cotton. And I pick them up 30 minutes away from my studio. That's why it's in North Carolina and not in Brooklyn. <laughs> and um, I have the walls you'll see behind me. So if a customer likes a pattern, I know I have 60 stock colors and I can pick five of them to blend into a new yarn that I'm plying here to, to aim and get within their color palette. Because every color is so nuanced, but when you're blending five, like I almost feel like I'm painting again, which is kind of wild. Um, because the, I can stop the machine and then change one of the five colors and continue it. And suddenly there's this like subtle shift. I'm, I truly am learning more about this stuff every day. So I'm keeping my variables tight. I'm making my yarn here and anything that I can't reproduce gets a big label on it. Like, hey, this is special. <laughs> it's not coming back. So if you want it, here we go. When, when you think about the evolution 
of of your your brand do you think about it specifically on the manufacturing side do you think about it in terms of expanding mills do you think about it in terms of closing the loop where you know eventually you're producing your own raw material to to make your own thread to make your own yarn to make your own textiles what how do you envision that um, or is it just too soon to even think about any of that? No, no, I think about all of this stuff constantly. I it's a problem almost. That's why I have to weave so I can calm down and feel better. <laughs> the irony, yikes. Um I I don't know because I'm often like, what's my goal here? I want to support myself and the person that I love in a place that I am happy and comfortable and I want to be happy doing my craft. I do not want to be handcuffed to the loom. And oftentimes as a supplier or a vendor, that's an even dirtier word that we didn't use. Uh, that can happen. I hear it all the time in manufacturing. This is something that I love to do and I want to share it with people. So I, I am, def I am. my prices aren't going to be insane. I, I will do custom colors. Um, I have a minimum MOQ, but this is coming from a place of passion. So I think, um, I, I just want to share my excitement. So we'll see how far I go with that. That being said, I love collaborations. And I think uh, I worked, I interned at Ralph Lauren home in, oh, I mean, oh, 10. Wow. In 10. Um, and I learned his story of the diffusion label. So I'm not saying I want to Halston this thing and end up selling to JCPenney and lose everything. But I think there's something to be said about um, to expanding the touch or the reach of something um, that's meaningful and personal, but it's a different story when you do it on a mass level like that. But TBD. Listen, at the same time, there is there is something to be said. Look, I'm a I love brands. I love brands. I study brands. I I think the to me the brand is is and the marketing of brands is one of the I consider it an an original American art form. I I really really do, and I think about things you know like think about Pabst Blue Ribbon and it gaining popularity in a time when everyone's drinking IPAs and Chimay and, and, you know, really expensive, unique, small batch craft brews. And then there's a, this, this Pabst Blue Ribbon and beer is a really interesting topic to me because, you know, regionally, it wasn't all just the big brands, right? Regionally, you go to different areas of the, of the country different areas of the world, but different areas of the country. And now more so, but like when I was, when I went to school at Washington state university, there were, you know, Rainier was, was a small batch. You know, when I lived in Texas, um, Shinerbach, you know, was a small batch that people would come in from Colorado to, to buy Shiner, you know, there's just this alcohol and liquor and beer is the branding of it. And I compare it directly to arts and artisans because what goes into many of those craft beverages at, at the time that they're new before they're sold off to one of the major companies is kind of like your Halston JCPenney example. It doesn't, you know, the quality drops because you have to mass produce. But for you, you know, you're, you're still, still, you're at the artisan craftsman level is the, is the desire, is the goal. Like when I look at your work, I see your work as purely artisan and artisanal and um it's it's unique and it's i i view it as like to be shown on its own not as part of something else you know and i think that that's how you view it as well a hundred a hundred percent and i thank you because i've i tie a lot of knots to get it to look like that um, but i think it's also just like the time you invest in something and how much love and care it gets um i think the one good example is uh, Ikea's collaborations with design. They take industrial designers and collaborate with them. And there's currently a collab, I forget the name of the studio right now, but it has sold, it, one of the lights became popular on TikTok and it has not been in stock. I mean, people are getting alerts on their phones to get texted. Young Gen Z, like 19 year olds are going to Ikea to buy a lamp. And it's well-crafted, it's well-made that they got a, social media buzz. So that's a different story. But um, moreover, when you take something that's artisanal and uh, dilute it down, oftentimes it can lose its sense of personality or charm. So I actively want to avoid that and fight that. I like 
that it um, that not everyone can have it. I love that. And and listen, if I've done nothing for, for those listening, go to the show notes and there will be a link to William's website so you can go and see it for yourself. It's amazing. It's wonderful. I love it. And I, and I think uh, you will too. What I love too is that this is just another resource for designers to, to provide something that is totally unique totally different that that they can incorporate and specify into into their designs so william thank you for the time i, I love your work hey thank you yeah well um, i'll look forward to meeting you uh in person and um and yeah please let me know about the uh the ai program you were mentioning earlier <laughs> yeah i'll tell you keep thinking about that but no it was great to chat um chat with you and uh truly it was a pleasure thank you <laughs> Design Hardware's newly remodeled showroom is where you will find a gallery-style space with a thoughtful display of products, purposefully positioned to allow unbridled exploration and discovery. High-end faucets, luxury tile, natural stone, wood floors, and bespoke hardware selections are presented in a holistic manner, strategically arranged to stimulate creativity and transition your vision from the conceptual stage to a fully realized space. Conveniently located, free parking available, stop by to find your inspiration, Collect samples, get expert advice, and tackle everything on your shopping list all in one place. Visit them online at designhardware.com or in the real world, 6053 West 3rd Street in Los Angeles. Thank you, William. Loved our chat. Loved the work. Thank you for making the time to speak with me. Thank you, uh, thank you to my partners and sponsors, Thermosol, Moya Living, and Design Hardware for your partnership and support. And thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to the show. I hope this allows you to take a breath, take a minute, and think about things in different and new ways. Please keep those emails coming, convobydesign at outlook.com. You can also reach out uh, at convobydesign with an X on Instagram with show ideas, guest suggestions, or just to say hi. Thanks for listening. And until next week, be well and take today first. (laughs) 